Coming to you from the Spirit Lounge, I'm your host, Lily. With me is my co-host, Vanessa, and this is the Haunted Happy Hour Podcast. Thanks for joining us for the last episode of our special October series, The Supernatural, Occult, and Mysteries. Today, we'll be talking about exorcisms and the occult. As we've said for our last episodes, if you follow us on Facebook and Instagram, you already saw our featured drink slash topic teaser for today. So of course, if you don't already follow us, go check us out on there. For today's featured drink, we're having the dagger. For this drink, all you need is pretty much the basics that you have around the house. I'm sure everyone has coffee, right, Lily? Of course. So for this one, you it does say cold, strong, brewed coffee, but I would say pretty much to your discretion, however you like your coffee. So this is a good, I would say, morning drink. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you can actually add whatever alcohol you would like to this. Um, I specifically chose cold brew coffee. It actually is infused with bourbon and whiskey. I thought that would go well with the coffee just to add a little bit of a kick to it. We also added some whipped cream to taste. So pretty much your discretion. If you noticed in our picture, we rimmed it with sprinkles, but we added some caramel sauce to it. So that kind of adds a little sweetness to it. And I would say it's pretty good. Yeah, it looks it looks good. Doesn't it? I I actually haven't tried it. Give me a second. (laughs) Go ahead. Oh, this is good. It reminds me kind of almost like a, um, what is that? That Kahlua type of drink, like a, Mm -hmm. a drink with like Kahlua. I like it. I, I love the coffee, but I like whatever it is that you used here. What is this? Bourbon whiskey, cold brew coffee. Right. And it's actually the, it says few, that's what it's called. F E W. That's the brand name. Um, it's actually really good. I really like this. To be honest, you mm-hmm. could actually even mm-hmm. drink this uh, alcoholic drink um, just on ice, even if you didn't want to add mm-hmm. the whipped cream. Mm-hmm. But for I know a lot of people out there like to add creamer to their drinks. I think the um, once the whipped cream kind of drizzles down, it kind of acts like a creamer. Mm-hmm. So for those of you that like to add coffee to your creamer, that would be a good one too. Perfect, perfect pairing. <laughs> it's also a lot different from the other drinks that we've done yeah. on the show. Mm-hmm. So I like it. I thought this was this was a good choice. Good. What's your rating? Um, honestly, I would give this one a ten because is it because you love coffee? I love though? coffee, but for all the coffee lovers out there, you could just wake up, do this one, add a splash of your favorite <laughs> in the, in alcohol. The morning. I know. <laughs> Well, I mean, add it to your to your thermos, right? right. Your tumbler. No one's right. going to know. Who's going to know? You're walking into work and it's like, hey, what's up? That's what you need. That's what you need to get through the day, especially on a Monday. Uh, yeah, especially. So good drink. Cheers. Awesome. Cheers. Okay, so now that we have our drinks, let's talk about exorcisms. One late night in April of 1949 a Jesuit priest in his room at St. Francis Xavier College and Church was saying his daily prayers. As he was nearing the end, he suddenly heard a diabolical laugh out in the distance. It immediately sent an intense chill down his spine. He froze for just a moment, but then walked over to his window and looked outside, searching for where that hair-raising sound came from. 
In the dimly lit darkness, he saw nothing out of the ordinary. Unknowingly, what he had just heard was an episode during the exorcism of a 14-year-old boy known as Roland Doe. This exorcism would go on to become the real-life inspiration for the novel and the movie The Exorcist. The story of the St. Louis exorcism is one that's been told for decades. However, several printed accounts of the story have been found to include misinformation and even some events that were purely made up. The real story of Rolando wasn't one that needed any fabrication. The true story itself was in reality even more terrifying. The story begins in Mount Rainier, Maryland in 1949. The young boy, for privacy reasons, was known as Roland Doe, Robbie Doe, and sometimes Robbie Mannheim. The family desperately wanted to keep the child's identity a secret from the public, one that lasted until his death at 85 years old in 2020. For consistency reasons, we'll continue to refer to the boy as Roland Doe. Roland was an only child and grew up in a, by some accounts, dysfunctional family with a troubled childhood. He lived with his parents and his maternal grandmother. The first accounts of disturbances for the family were noted in January of 1949 when they began hearing what sounded like scratching coming from within the walls and in the floorboards of their home. An inspection by an exterminator proved this wasn't coming from any animals. Soon after this, the family began hearing footsteps and noticing objects missing. Then, Roland started being attacked by what seemed like classic poltergeist activity. His bed would shake violently, ripping his blankets off from him, and sometimes even pulling him off the bed. Noticing all the activity and trying to make sense of it, Roland's mother initially believed it was the work of Roland's recently deceased Aunt Tilly. Tilly had a strong interest in spiritualism and the occult. She had taught young Roland how to communicate with spirits through a Ouija board. Soon, the scratching sounds the family had first heard suddenly stopped. After a few short days, though, Roland reported hearing the noises in his room at night. He likened the sound to squeaking shoes. Then, turning into, once again, the same scratching they had all heard before. Though some would go on to say that they never believed Roland was ever actually possessed, it's hard to deny activity when you witness it firsthand. On several occasions, while in class, Roland's desk would slide into the aisle, begin jerking around, and bump into other desks. Books would fly off the bookcase and land right in front of him. 
one instance found a coat flying off the closet hanger and landing right on Roland's shoulder. On a different occasion, Roland and his family were out visiting friends at their home when shockingly they all witnessed a rocking chair in which Roland was sitting abruptly lean back and start spinning around nonstop. Roland's feet weren't even touching the ground. At home one evening, Roland's relatives came in to visit from out of town. Roland was sitting in a large, overstuffed chair in the living room, enjoying conversation with the family, when suddenly the chair's back legs lifted and dumped Roland to the floor. The family, not sure of what they had just seen, began inspecting the chair to try to figure out what happened, but they could find nothing wrong with it. All of these instances seemed impossible, but every one of these people had seen things happen, all with their own eyes. After these events, Roland's parents took him to see a doctor, a psychologist, and a psychiatrist. When the doctors didn't find anything wrong with him, they decided to contact their Lutheran minister, Reverend Luther Schultz. The Reverend was understandably skeptical at first, but after visiting the family at their home and witnessing some activity for himself, like furniture moving around on its own and Roland's bed shaking uncontrollably, he became convinced something more malicious was at hand here. And he told the family he would help in any way he could. In the coming days, Roland's personality would begin to take a toll. He became very withdrawn, depressed, and angry, frequently cursing, which was completely out of the ordinary for young Roland. It's at this point that the family started to wonder if Roland was possessed. But since Reverend Schultz was a Lutheran minister and believed that the idea of possession was simply a Roman Catholic belief that he did not share, he began to search for other possibilities. He started to theorize that Roland could be causing all the activity himself through ESP. On February 17th, Reverend Schultz decided to find out if the family's house was itself haunted as the family thought, or if it was something to do with Roland. He knew that if the phenomena was connected to Roland, then the house wouldn't exhibit any activity if Roland was gone. So, Reverend Schultz offered to have Roland spend the night at his house, to which Roland's parents quickly agreed. That night, just 10 minutes after the Reverend and Roland retired to their beds, Reverend Schultz reported hearing Roland's bed start to creak and shake. When he turned on the lights, he saw the bed visibly shaking. He began to pray, but that only made the bed shake even more. Eventually, moving the boy to lay on a makeshift cushion of blankets on the floor, once Roland dozed off, even that makeshift cushion began to move around. After this night, Reverend Schultz was not only terrified, but now 
knew the paranormal phenomena was connected to Roland. Roland would continue to be tormented by the activity. But then, on February 26th, long bloody scratches began to appear on the boy's body. Realizing this was now completely out of his realm, Reverend Schultz advised the family to contact a Catholic priest. Entirely at a loss now, Roland's mother began to talk about taking Roland to St. Louis in the hopes that a change of scenery may help him. Strangely enough, as the family tried to decide if they should go, the word Louis appeared on Roland's ribcage and his back. A few days later, the family boarded a train to St. Louis. That first night in St. Louis, at the home of Roland's aunt, any hope the family had crumbled when again his heavy wooden bed began to move. The next day, the family moved to Roland's uncle's house. After a day full of calmness and happiness of seeing relatives, that night would end up like all the others. The bed shook, scratching sounds came from the mattress, and more scratches would appear on Roland's body. Roland's oldest cousin, who was attending St. Louis University, suggested to Roland's parents that she would talk to one of her Jesuit professors. The next day, she arranged a meeting with Father Raymond Bishop. After hearing the accounts, Father Bishop conferred with two of his colleagues, both of which suggested he visit the home to verify for himself if indeed the boy was demonically possessed. Having gone to visit the family and witnessing the boy's mattress shake uncontrollably while visibly seeing zigzag markings appear on Roland's stomach, Bishop knew he needed to talk to his friend, Father William Bowdern, about what he had seen. Knowing he had to understand what was going on with the boy, Father Bowdern agreed to visit the home with Bishop. After this visit, and several more accounts being recounted to them about the boy, Father Bowdern and Bishop asked the Archbishop for permission to conduct an exorcism on Roland Doe, claiming that he was progressively reaching the stage of diabolical possession. The Archbishop promptly granted the permission, beginning the actual St. Louis exorcism. The exorcism began on March 16th. Fathers Bowdern and Bishop, along with seminary student Walter Halloran, arrived at Roland's home and began the rites of exorcism. Roland lay in bed as the three men surrounded the bed. Throughout the readings, Roland would scream and red bloody scratches would appear on him. At one point, the word hell appeared on Roland's chest. Roland collapsed and suddenly fell asleep. He began to mumble words under his breath, 
thrash about violently through his pillow, but he was still asleep. Father Bowdern sprinkled the boy's body with holy water, and that instantly awakened Roland. Father Bowdern continued to pray. Roland lapsed into unconsciousness, flailing around, kicking and punching. Roland's uncle and Halloran tried to hold him down. With his eyes shut, Roland spit at both men in the face. Pulling one arm free, he struck his uncle in the face. A few moments later, he let out a horrific howl. The first night of the exorcism ended at 7.30 a.m. the next morning, when Roland finally fell into a peaceful sleep. The exorcisms on the night that followed mimicked the first. Except for the night when the boy's body twisted in all directions, almost vomiting, and Roland said that he was going. A cool wind rushed the room and Roland collapsed on the bed. But this wasn't the end. At 3 a.m. the following morning, the men were called back to Roland's room. And again, the exorcism ritual commenced. Night after night, the exorcism would continue and Roland's behavior would grow stranger. During the rites, Roland would urinate, sing in what Halloran called a perfect choir boy voice, mock the three Jesuits, call them names, curse, howl, pass gas, and laugh diabolically in a voice not his own. After several nights of this, Father Bowdern recommended that Roland be placed at the Alexian Brothers Hospital. But this lasted only one completely calm, uneventful night. With Roland returning home and the activity continuing, Father Bowdern began taking the steps to convert Roland to Catholicism, believing this was his greatest defense. Just after midnight on March 25th, believing this was the end of Roland's possession, Father Bowdern led what he thought would be the final exorcism. For the next four days, Roland experienced no further activity. Then, dashing everyone's hope, all the activity returned, as did the exorcism ritual. Enduring violently tiring exorcisms night after night, coming out of a trance, Roland begged his father to take him back home to Maryland. Worried about this decision, Father Bowdern accompanied the family on the train back to Maryland. While there, Father Bowdern tried desperately to find someone local in the area to continue helping the boy. Being turned away by many facilities not wanting anything to do with an exorcism and having exhausted all efforts, after some days, he was able to convince Roland's parents to return him to St. Louis and place him once again at the Alexian Brothers Hospital. Once at the hospital, Roland would continue to undergo his nightly exorcism rituals. The Jesuits, Alexians, and monks would hold the boy down as he would regularly slip out of his restraints 
and attack those in the room. Day after day, Roland exhibited no issues during the day and seemed always pleasant. But whenever night came, it was always a completely different story. Then, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday all came and went, and all proved peaceful days. This gave Father Bowdern the hope that an end could be in sight. Monday, April 18th, would prove to be one of the most troublesome yet. Roland woke up at 8 a.m., already seemingly under a spell of anger and violence. This episode would last all day, on and off. The Alexians unsuccessfully tried to give him communion numerous times. The exorcism started that night at 7 p.m. This time, Father Bowdern draped religious medals over Roland and placed a crucifix in his hand. After one of the most roughest and violent episodes yet, the exorcist was able to get through his long rite of rituals. Suddenly, the room went quiet. With Roland almost in a seizure state, another voice came through him, claiming to be that of St. Michael, the Archangel, ordering the demon to depart the body in the name of Dominus, the Latin word for Lord. Roland's body then went through the most violent contortions of the entire exorcism. After seven or eight minutes of violence, Roland sat up, smiled, and exclaimed, He's gone. With this confirmation from Roland, everyone breathed a sigh of relief. And with that, the exorcism was finally over. All right. So that was an intense story. Um, and honestly, whatever you believe in, there's no denying that something did happen. And it was bad enough that the family felt like they needed to uproot themselves and pretty much trek almost across the country to St. Louis from Maryland. So, you know, just even thinking about that aspect with people saying that possibly this was a hoax or something that Roland himself was making up and, you know, maybe got a little bit out of hand to the family. That's that's not what it was like. You know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. it was just something something so much more something mm -hmm. that they had no idea what was going on with and they were just completely terrified. I mean, who wouldn't be yeah. seeing your your child like mm -hmm. this and not being able to do anything to pretty much help them? I mean, I don't know. I mean, what what did you think about the story? First of all, have you have you heard of this story? I actually haven't heard of this story, so it was it was very eye opening to hear it. Exactly what you're saying is what I was thinking about too, because initially I thought, you know, is this something that 
it kind of reminded me, it brought me back to the witch trials. Mm -hmm. So I started thinking about that um, a little bit. But then when you mentioned that, like you say, uprooting and completely changing their life around. Right. um, Just to help him. Right. And it is odd to think about, though, you know, the, the concept, you know, like people are really like, oh, really? Did that happen? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't believe in it. You know, but at the same time, you know, we don't know what was going on. Right. We're outside looking in and we're just listening to this story. Yep. What really took place? Um, you did mention about the Ouija board aspect of it. Mm-hmm, That's something mm-hmm. that, you know, I don't know if anybody has ever dealt with that. But, right. you know, we we know that you don't mess with that sort of thing. Well, in in the the weird thing with that, so uh, you know, obviously Tilly, uh, Roland's Aunt Tilly, she was a very spiritual person, and you know, thinking back to this period that these people were in, um, you know, forties, fifties, um, the people at at this point, they they believed in that kind of stuff, and. It wasn't anything out of the ordinary for people of this time to hold seances and to hold kind of these spiritual type of gatherings at their their homes. You know, there was some people who had homes with rooms specifically for seances around this time, you know, and that's when a lot of the spiritual um, and use of the, the Ouija board really kind of started getting big. And so at that point, you know, nobody ever, ever thought anything of it. It's what everybody at that time was doing. Mm-hmm. So when, you know, Tilly started to teach Roland about this whole spiritual side of things and teaching, teaching him how to use the Ouija board, you know, that, that was, that wasn't anything out of the ordinary. Okay. And so like the funny thing is though, that Ouija boards didn't get that scary like connotation yeah mm-hmm. until this movie came out oh interesting and again that makes sense too because again in the like 60s and 70s you're starting to see again that mm, what is it the, the resurgence mm-hmm. of of all of this stuff you okay. know all of this occult spirituality uh ouija board type of deal you and I have both had experiences with with Ouija boards, unfortunately. <laughs> and it, it's it's funny because I think at, when when we used them, it was at least for me way before I started learning more and more about you know the paranormal and demonic possession and talking to spirits and, and and all of this, all of this stuff. And so the more now that we talk about it, it's always kind of the the energy that you bring in with you. You know, it's kind of the way that you're supposed to interact. I don't know if that makes sense, but right. it's like there's a certain way that that you should approach any kind of of spiritual situation. Mm-hmm. You know, if you approach a situation like that with really you know intense negative energy i completely think and agree with the fact that that's what you're going to get back right and if you approach it in a different manner Mm -hmm. it'll be different right 
So thinking about it kind of in, in those terms, you know, you've had so many people that do use Ouija boards mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. negative things. Yes. Uh -huh. For the purpose of, you know, I know we've had previous episodes where we talked about portals. Right. You know, for the purpose of opening up portals, for the purpose of of, of talking and communicating with demons. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like that's that's when a lot of this this negativity around the board kind of started coming out. Mm -hmm. And so like with me coming back to my use with the board itself, I always thought it was scary. Right. Because I always I that's what I had always heard. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that helped my situation. Right. I'm I'm coming in already terrified, right. thinking, holy crap, I hope like I something, don't. Something bad's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. And so. Well, it also doesn't help, though, that during around that time, I remember you mentioning when you back when you lived in Chicago, mm -hmm. um, you lived in an apartment complex. Right. So it doesn't help that you want to tell the story really quick which one the one i love it which, which one, one which one of many no the one where um the neighbors oh okay you saw stuff happening you weren't sure so, though that one was creepy so you know i'm i'm living in in if you guys can picture it kind of like a u-shaped complex and you know the there's a court a courtyard in between my my apartment, which has, you know, a window facing the courtyard and I can see directly into the the opposite apartment from us um, on the other side of the complex. And so one day I'm walking past the the window and just out of the corner of my eye, I can see, you know, first of all, that apartment had no no drapes, no window coverings at all. And so you could see completely into the apartment. But it was completely dark and what caught my eye was all of a sudden I saw just a bunch of of little lights so I stopped and I realized that they had a bunch of candles lit so of course me <laughs> me being me and of course <laughs> knowing knowing what I knowing that to me I associate that with occult practices mm -hmm. you know right. I, I know that that's not necessarily true right but when you see a formation like that, that's kind of just where my mind goes. Right. And so all of a sudden I turn, I look and I see people sitting around a table. It's, it's like a circle shaped table. All these people sitting around it with a bunch of candles and the whole room is dark. So I'm like, uh, it was a definitely right. a creepy it's, vibe. It's scary. I it mean, you don't weird. know what's happening. But right. Yeah. That was weird. Right. So that day I just, whatever. I'm like, okay, well, they're doing their thing. You know, you do you. Type right, deal. exactly. <laughs> so I went about my business. Live your best life. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so the thing that, that struck me, and again, it, it could all be coincidence, but after that day, we started experiencing things in our apartment mm -hmm. that we had never experienced before. You know, all of a sudden things in the kitchen would would move on their own. Mm -hmm. Uh I remember we had a what do you call it? Like baking sheets, like yeah. a bunch of baking sheets just stacked up on the radiator in the kitchen and had them there for years, 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 years. Mm -hmm. And then we're in the living room watching TV. All of a sudden we hear a huge like just 
commotion in the kitchen, like something hard fell and hit the floor. So we were like, what the heck was that? Walk over to the kitchen. All those pans were on the floor. Yeah, you know, it, it could have just fallen. You know, maybe somebody didn't place it correctly the last time they used it, whatever it was. Um, but that that was the first thing that happened. Mm -hmm. I remember coming home another day and our TV in the bedroom was turned on. Mm, obviously, if nobody's home, nobody's watching TV, nobody turned the TV on before they left. I know that for a fact. Why all of a sudden is it on? Mm -hmm. I think that TV thing happened at least three times. Right. The last thing that happened that was kind of like the kicker was we were sleeping, you know, just middle of the night sleeping. And I had a weird dream that night. Weird, weird dream. It was, I remember feeling like I couldn't move, almost like one of those like sleep paralysis dreams. And all of a sudden I just get woken up out of a dead sleep because I, I smelled, I don't know, it was like a really bad odor. Mm -hmm. Like I, I don't even know what it was at the time. So I get up and I'm trying to walk around thinking, is, is it gas? Like, yeah. are, are we going to blow up? Right. So I'm walking around, open the door to the hallway, nothing. I'm like, okay, so it's in the apartment. Wandering around the apartment, we're, you know, both walking around the apartment trying to figure it out. And we, I remember it was, um, we, we both kind of just looked at each other. Um, it was when JJ was staying with me. Mm -hmm. And we both just looked at each other and we're like, that smells like rotten eggs. That yeah. smells like sewer. Right. It smells like sulfur. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden <laughs> it just clicked. I was like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> something weird happened, you yeah. know, because everybody always associates that sulfur smell. Right. With like some kind of demonic activity. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's real. But to me at the time. That's where my mind went. And then with all of these other instances, I was like, oh, my gosh, these people. Mm -hmm. well, what the heck happened? And actually funny, because recently I was talking to JJ about it again because mm -hmm. we were just kind of talking about this sort of thing. And he did say that he never once ever felt uh, afraid or negative mm -hmm. vibes there. Right. But he did say that when that stuff was going on, he actually did not feel comfortable and he didn't know why. Like he couldn't explain it. And then mm -hmm. at night, um, he, he, re he recalls a couple times where he just at night just could not sleep, but for some reason felt like that he wasn't alone, but he couldn't explain it um, mm -hmm. anyway. But he did recall not fe feeling comfortable there for a while. And the weird thing is, though, you know, I, I felt the same way. You know, I felt uh, I felt kind of like different you could feel the energy was just different but once these people moved out everything was completely back to normal again hmm. isn't that funny? like it was like a complete like just turn mm -hmm. i'm like oh my gosh like i i never pieced it together yeah. but then one day i randomly saw that the apartment was empty mm -hmm. and i'm like oh they're gone i'm like oh i wonder if that's why everything's feeling a little bit more normal again yeah mm -hmm. so, interesting i don't know i I mean, I don't know. I don't know if that's what they were doing over there. Who knows? Who knows? Yep. 
But but the, again, that's where your mind right, wants to go. Right. My thing with this story, too, I thought it was super wild that they managed to keep his identity yeah. a secret for until he was 85 years old. Yeah, that's nuts. He just died just recently. And, you know, he was obviously he was a minor at the time. Number one, obviously, that's that's why they were trying to do it. But number two, they just didn't want to get this let this kind of like leak out you know because it is it is something personal Mm -hmm. you know and obviously the stigma that one would have if people were to find out like what happened to you Mm -hmm. that's that's crazy right and who knows what kind of badgering he would have received right right so i have seen you know as of lately um when i was doing the research for this that there was a name that kept popping up and I believe I believe it's it's his name, but mm-hmm. I still felt like I, I didn't want to mention it. I didn't want to bring right. it up just because I didn't feel like out that, of respect. Yeah, I Makes didn't feel sense. like that was that was right. Right. So I, I mean, I agree. I don't know. Like they they did a really a really good job kind of just keeping this whole situation just like under lock and key for right. such a long period of time Mm -hmm. honestly yeah and that was good though because at the same time it makes you also kind of know that the parents weren't in it for the attention either Mm -hmm. yeah so i mean all of that really kind of just paired together to me makes me believe the story Mm -hmm. i don't know i mean like i mentioned in the story that there's there's different accounts of what happened and going through chronologically and just trying to piece things together, you do kind of see, oh, uh, this doesn't really seem like it would have actually happened. Oh, this doesn't really right. fit. These yeah. dates don't match up. So you can kind of see where there's a little bit of mismatch happening. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, I did I did find a lot of the stuff through the diaries that uh, the priest kept during the actual exorcism wow. itself. So that's where a lot of the information was pulled from. And it's it's really interesting because that was like one of like the caveats really for granting permission for the exorcism, mm-hmm. which, by the way, I I had heard that there was some talk about people being curious as to how they even got permission to even do this exorcism, because at no point like if you were to go down like and actually see like the there's there's like a list Mm -hmm. of requirements yeah i've heard of that actually and at no point did roland ever actually check all those boxes Mm -hmm. like i know Mm -hmm. one of them that i saw a lot of people kind of like debating about was uh speaking in tongues and he, he there's one story that says that he did but you know that whole story was kind of like mishmashed and didn't really Mm. make any sense so a lot of people are like he did because you know this story says it but then other people like well that doesn't match with everything else so so forget it right that's not throw it out the window right so Mm -hmm. people believe that that part is a part of the story that's kind of been like made up and just Mm -hmm. thrown Thrown in in. to like just colorize the the story even more which i really don't think that it even needs right exactly um, so, you know, that was, that was a big thing because if he didn't check all the boxes, mm-hmm. how did then the archbishop say, yeah, right. you're, you're all good. Go, go do this. Mm-hmm. So 
that that was kind of that was kind of crazy. Well, in itself, without checking all the boxes, that was a lengthy process anyway until they reached that point. I mean, what? It started in January. Yeah. January through April. Yeah. Yeah. So and then finally, March was when things started. I think they started doing the exorcisms. Yeah. and things. So yep. that's actually a long time to wait and to live like that. Right. Right. And I mean, understandably, obviously, the the family in St. Louis, I mean, they, they spent the first night with with the aunt. And then after that, I think that family was kind of like, eh, we're, we're done. We're good. Can you can you go find somewhere right. else? And then they <laughs> wow. went over to, to the uncle's place. Mm-hmm. Um, but with that, though, that that aunt, the aunt mm-hmm. and her family, they're Lutheran. Mm. So, you know, I. I uh, the the uncle's family then that they ended up going to they're catholic they were catholic okay. so it's like i wonder if because they were lutheran they didn't believe what was happening and maybe thought it was just rolling making it up right being a, mm-hmm. a troublemaker and doing whatever the heck and they mm-hmm. wanted no part of it i don't know that's interesting yeah but it's like and then like a, another funny funny piece of it though is you know spoiler alert once all this is like said and done, you know, the family obviously started out as being Lutheran. You know, that was the first minister that they contacted to to help them with all of this. And then they ended up all converting to Catholicism after it. Oh, wow. Right. Yeah. They're like, uh, we're we're being Catholic now, we believe. <laughs> and we're going to be probably full on practicing now <laughs> from this point on. That's funny. Yeah. So, I mean... Intense story. Mm-hmm. Do you? Is. So I would assume you you believe. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, initial like I said, initially it was kind of like the witch trials, but mm-hmm. then as it went on, I thought, huh. And the fact that even at school, that was what yeah. got me too. Yeah, at school that was going on. So You're like it followed him everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of interesting to me too. So I couldn't quite. I was trying to figure it out. But as it went on, I mean, because initially there was a red flag raised because you mentioned he had a troubled childhood. Mm-hmm, well, mm-hmm. I thought, OK, right there. Mm-hmm, red flag. Right. But then as the story went on and it progressed, I thought, OK, well, this stuff is going out, going on outside of the home. Right. Huh. Yeah. And, you know, after all of this, uh, Roland never remembered anything. Hmm. You know, I. I I don't that's another thing that skeptics raised eyebrows with. Why? Because it's a traumatic event. Maybe your mind is well, blocking it. Or they're just like, okay, first of all, this was, you know, we just said January through April, this happened. And all of these like episodic events and the exorcisms and all of this, you don't remember. How is that possible? But then, yeah, like you just said, mm-hmm. people are like, well. Whenever it's really heavy trauma, right? Oh, people, a lot of people, Just a lot of the times, block it. Yeah, yeah, you don't remember that, right? So, I don't know. You know, I thought I thought that was that was an intense thing because I had heard. So there's there's obviously a lot of books out on this, a lot of documentaries, and a lot of you know different stories out about it. Uh, but one of the authors had reached out to Roland uh, when he was still alive to kind of talk about it. And he was like, it was such a short conversation because he could tell me nothing. You oh. know, I would ask him questions. He's like, I, I don't remember. Mm-hmm. I don't know. 
Interesting. Yeah. So that's wild. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what to make of that, but crazy story. Interesting story. Interesting that it did go on to pretty much inspire the exorcist. Yep. And I'm sure there's a lot of folks out there that have seen it. So funny because as you were reading it, I was kind of trying to play pieces of the movie in my mind. Yeah. Those scenes. Well, thanks for that story, Lily. Up next, we have a story about a place in Chicago with a background in mobsters and occult practices. That's up when we come back. Okay, and we're back now with Vanessa and talking about occult activity. So let's hear our next story. Okay. Once housing an occultist temple, a speakeasy, and a brothel since it was built in 1894, this is a building with a dark past. A place with tales of human sacrifice and murder. This is the Golden Dagger, or better known as the Tonic Room. The building at 2447 North Halstead, Chicago, Illinois, was built in 1894. The lower floor was for the bar and music venue. During the Roaring Twenties, it was the location of a speakeasy and hangout for the Irish Northside Gang. The Northside Gang used this space for bootlegging, top-tier beer, and whiskey. They also made sure their gambling rackets were sterling. The rooms upstairs, however, were for the brothel. This building was a main hangout for their gang. They spent time here planning their next moves or plotting against their arch rivals, the Southside Gang, led by none other than Al Capone. Unfortunately, Things would not end well for the North Side Gang when they came face to face with Capone's gang on February 14, 1929, as we referred to in one of our road trip episode series. Interestingly enough, somewhere in the 1930s, the building was also used for members of an occult group named the Golden Dawn. It was originally founded by the London Freemasons. They used the building for secret meetings, as well as an area used for their rituals. Some speculate there were human sacrifices during these rituals. In 1969, the main level of the building became a shop known as El Sabarum, owned by self-proclaimed Pontifus Maximus of the Sabian religious order, Frederick de Arikaga. He sold all kinds of ceremonial items, from herbs and candles to talismans and goat hooves. He also made use of the basement as his personal temple of the moon. Elsa Barham's reputation began to tank after the release of the 1973 film The Exorcist, mainly due to the pushback from local Christians. 
The building saw another change of hands a few more times over the next couple decades. Brothers Chris and Mike Shuba bought it and turned it back into a tavern, calling it the Everly Club, as a nod to its origins and one of Chicago's most famous brothels. It became the Jub Jub Club in 1989. However, in April of 2021, the current owner decided to change it up once again to the Golden Dagger, as it stands today and is currently open for business. The newest name comes from the era of the Golden Dawn, as well as a literal ceremonial dagger that was found in a basement window well. The skull-handled knife now sits in a glass box above the counter, punctuating the giant capital letters of the establishment's name behind a small hanging lamp. It's a perfect metaphor for the Golden Dagger's occult past. Customers and staff throughout the years have shared their experiences that have taken place in the building. During some renovation in the basement, workers removed a worn-looking dagger from a window well. On the floor of the basement, Ray Johnson, a retired cop and one of Chicago's haunt detectives, said they found the remains of a painted-on pentagram. That's when weird things started happening. Right after it was removed, a bouncer went to the basement and suddenly felt paralyzed. Where the pentagram was, Johnson said. He went down on the ground, couldn't move, couldn't talk. When they took him to the hospital, doctors said there was nothing at all wrong with him. To this day, Johnson said, owners won't move the dagger from where it was found except to show it off if asked nicely. After their deaths, it seems the mobsters that went about their business within the walls of the tonic room managed to find their way back to home base. Now, they sit around once more, sipping their booze and discussing the order of the day. Many employees have double takes, seeing various men in suits belly up to the bar at odd hours of the day. Photos have been taken with both older and newer cameras, and many turn out odd with mists or ghostly figures appearing in the background, where they definitely weren't at the time they were taken. Sometimes the subjects of the pictures will turn out blurry or distorted, for no reason at all. Are the walls of this structure cursed due to the ritualistic ceremonial events that would occur? Are the specters of the gangsters still going about their business? If you dare to pay homage to the spirits that roam this building, don't forget to bring your camera. Who knows what you may capture? But just remember, do not touch the dagger. So that was the story on the Tonic Room, a.k.a. Golden Dagger. Uh, so, Lily, what did you think about this one? <clears throat> okay, so first of all, let me just say I'm amazed that my voice has made it 
I wanted to say something. This whole episode. I know. I'm I'm actually wanting to give you shout out for, <laughs> shout outs for that one. I thought for sure I I would have been more creaking and cracking than I've than I have been. I know. You've been hanging on there. Good job. <sighs> I'm getting used to this this podcast thing. I gotta take care of my voice. <laughs> Since everyone out there can't see our display, mind you, she has a bunch of <laughs> stuff on the table right now I have like a whole pharmacy she does she has like sprays honeys two different drinks <laughs> two different drinks <laughs> cough <laughs> drops earlier she had her neck all wrapped up i said you look like Mar- <laughs> mariah carey at this point i'm like i gotta i gotta take care of my vocal cords i gotta wrap them up i gotta get ready we're podcasting soon um <laughs> But anyways, anyway, back to this. Sec- second of all, <laughs> I love the connection to the exorcist. Right. That that just all of a sudden got me like right away. I'm like, what? Mind you out there. We we both came up with these stories. So it wasn't like a co- like we didn't mean to do that. Right. Yeah. Right. So that was that was very cool. Right. It just happened to work out that way. But it was weird, though, that that connection to that that sir. <laughs> <laughs> That who was it? El El Saburum. El right. Saburum. So what? What was he? Was he like a like? I know you said he was like from a religious order. Yeah. So what I gathered from it is that that was his home base, um, where his practice was uh, being taken place. Mm-hmm. So he was part of this Golden Dawn. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, and so that the Golden Dawn, actually, I went back to look at it because I actually didn't even know what that was either. So it said Golden Dawn, um, this was an order, which was one of the first of three orders having to do with this whole... Um, like the occult group, right, the occult practicing? Through, through this group, yeah. So it said Golden Dawn was one cohesive group later known as the First Order. Mm, yeah. Interesting. Right. So, you know, whatever they did, whatever their beliefs were, you know, part of it had to do with, from what I saw, was sacrifices, actually. The human sacrifices. Yeah. So throughout the research, it did, like, people speculated that. There was one woman, though, that she was saying that when she was younger, um, I guess her dad belonged to this group as well. Oh, my gosh. So she said that... um, it must have been bring your kid to work day because she actually was there. And wow. although she didn't, she wasn't in the area where they were doing the sacrifices. She kind of pieced things together. She said that she could hear things going on. So she just, as she grew older, realized, wow. yeah, that's what was going on was Jeez. sacrifices. So, yeah, she was able to. Get, Do you know I, anything more about that about that group? No, I actually don't. You can actually look it up, the Golden mm-hmm, Dawn. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it has to do with um let's see here. So it talked about the Freemasons. Mm-hmm. Uh specifically here it was the London Freemasons. But anyway, when I did look it up, it did kind of talk about that, but more so it talked about pretty much what it had to do with with everything. Their re- this was their religion. So um, I just looked it up and then it was giving me like pictures and things like that. But actually the dagger, they did, there was a picture of the dagger that they did find at this tonic room. The dagger actually did look like it had symbols of the golden dawn order. 
So they do say that it was a secret society devoted to the study and practices of the occult, metaphysics, and paranormal activities during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Okay, that's and that's curious that you mentioned the dagger with the inscriptions or what was it? it the Golden like, Dawn? It looked like it had like just kind of like the formation of it because mm-hmm. um, it has to do with three orders. So it looked like the handle itself had like three, a three formation. Mm-hmm. I thought that's what I had seen, but... Anyway, because that's what I was going to ask you. I'm like, dude, did they know where that dagger, like where it came from? Like what what the purpose of it was? Um, I didn't know for sure if it was tied to that occult group or not. I think that's what they're assuming because Mm -hmm. of the fact that uh, Johnson had found it or they had said they had found it Mm -hmm. um, around that pentagram. So they were just putting two and two together based off of that. Which that pentagram thing, that caught my attention too. So, what I'm, I'm assuming they were like refinishing floors, and mm-hmm. they found this pentagram painted on the floor, right? Yeah, they've been doing. Well, first of all, this building sounds like they've has been through a lot of renovations in itself, mm-hmm. and so lately, yeah, they were doing updates, uh, and they had seen this. So in the story, it talks about how they had one of the workers yeah. in the basement doing whatever and, yeah, happened to find it, unknowingly probably picked it up, probably, you know, minding their own business. Right. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, paralyzed. paralyzed. Yeah. So I wonder if, like, I'd be curious to know if, so they had, they had removed the pentagram. Right? Like it wasn't there anymore? I'm assuming they actually didn't say. But so I'm just assuming. I'm, yeah, I'm, I assume too. Right. That they removed it. So I'm curious if like if this guy, this bouncer, this worker mm-hmm. knew that that's where it was. If he didn't, that'd be oh, even creepier. Yeah. That's, Good point. Yeah, that's creepy. That is creepy. So I actually am curious. I know that you were in Chicago mm-hmm. for a while. Mm-hmm. Did you ever come across this building at no. all? Or do you know where it, ki- it no, kind of is? I don't actually. And that's what struck me from the whole the whole thing in general. Like when you first started talking about it, saying it's in Chicago, I had never, never heard of it. You know, especially even, you know, the Golden Dawn, the occult group. I know you mentioned, though, that it did have kind of a tie to the St. Valentine's Day Massacre more so just because that's where the gang kind of mm-hmm. gathered right so the rival gang right so i wonder if at some point during one of the many tours that we've taken if it was at some point mentioned and i just never never really caught paid it attention. never yeah. yeah never paid attention but yeah no i had never heard of it right have you no, I was actually wondering if you had only mm-hmm. because it said uh, North Halstead. I know you were around there quite a bit. Right. That's why I wanted to ask you if you were familiar with it. Yeah, no. And I even like right now I was Google map. I was Google mapsing it mm-hmm. to try to figure out where it was. And I'm like, gosh, where where is it? It looks yeah. small. Like the outside of the building. Yeah, looks, it does. It looks tiny. Uh huh. Like very hidden, which makes sense if it's all. If it's supposed to be like a gangster hideout right, type of deal. Right. Yeah. I did mention there was like a retired cop 
uh, named Ray Johnson, mm-hmm. part of Haunt Detective. That's where he's from. So you can actually go to the hauntdetective.com and it actually gives you a lot of stories around certain areas in Chicago that we've mentioned, mm-hmm. but also that we never mentioned or places that I actually haven't even heard of. And I didn't even know this site existed. So it's called Chicago's Haunt Detective. And it uh, gives you a lot of cool stories for those of you that um, are wanting to become a little bit more familiar with Chicago hauntings. So it's kind of cool, too, because I was curious because right. I noticed that it said Haunt Detective. What's that? So I just yeah, looked it up. Cool. Yeah. And it says Hauntings, Legends, Folklore. On it says Strange Chicago Blog, Historic Haunted Tours. It also even has a section for books. So, so really anything paranormal Chicago related, this, yeah. is, this is your spot. Right. It's actually kind of interesting. Again, I've never heard of it. So I was curious about it. It's actually a good a good spot in case you are wanting to go do even the little haunted tours of your own, go do the road trips like we talked about in the past, if you're looking into doing some of that in the near future. So one thing I was I was wondering, has anyone found out what is actually causing the activity? Like is it really is it is it mobsters? Is it this occult group? And that's what I was curious about because Looking into this stuff, they've focused more on the Golden Dawn than anything else. Mm-hmm. They did, Like I said, they touched on, um, there was some points about the mobsters and things. They kind of really brushed through the brothel situation. But as our stories in oh, the yeah. past, mm-hmm. we've mentioned, you know, all of that is all tied in. Right. They do think that, like, employees have seen people um, in suits Uh, They do double takes and things Mm -hmm. like that. They've captured things on camera. So they really don't know really technically what is or who is there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they know that the story behind it is, you know, the mobsters. And then they really think that there's something big having to do with the occult situation that was there. Which makes sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess it's just... uh, a gathering of all the activity that right. was there. And especially since this building has been through a lot of renovations. And I want to say at one point there was a fire that was way in oh. the past though. Okay. Um, but also the current owners, they actually don't care about the history mm-hmm. of this building. Mm-hmm. All they wanted was just to renovate it. And they wanted to make an effort to reopen it for the community and actually, during the pandemic, they did a lot of renovations to it. Oh. And so now, today, it's actually coffee and, and cocktails. And they do have concerts there, apparently. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And so that's kind of cool because that's why I chose the the, the coffee drink. the coffee cocktail. Oh, that's Because I wanted sense. to tie it into this story. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. You're so clever. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a cool story, though. I mean, definitely something that I had not known anything about. So thanks for thanks for sharing that one and and the drink that came along with it. Of course, for <laughs> sure. So this is the last in our October series, but we do have some bonus episodes for November and December. So we have some extra goodies for you all until the end of the season. And with that, until next time, thanks for joining us for another happy hour in the Spirit Lounge. I'm Vanessa. And I'm Lily. And this was the Haunted Happy Hour Podcast.
Don't forget to subscribe to the show anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you have Echo devices, an easy way to listen is just say, Alexa, play Haunted Happy Hour podcast. Plus, follow us on Facebook and Instagram to check out our next episode teaser and drink feature. See if you can guess what our next topic will be. Until next time. Cheers. Cheers.